In 2016, the Bar of Ireland held a series of lectures celebrating the role of barristers and the courts at key junctures in the history of our state. The lectures included an examination of pivotal trials and some important legal personalities that figured in Ireland's struggle for independence. Under the guidance of the then Bar Council Chair, now Mr Justice David Barneval of the High Court, a range of legal luminaries presented at Green Street Courthouse near Smithfield Market here in Dublin 7. Today, we are delighted to bring these informative and engaging lectures to you in a different format and for a wider audience. In this episode, the 1798 trials delivered by Paddy Gagby, Senior Counsel, with an introduction by David Barnabal. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, I want to welcome you all to the second lecture in our series of uh, lectures looking at famous or infamous uh, criminal trials in our history and the roles played by barristers in those trials. Um, I'm delighted that Paddy has agreed to give the talk today on the 1798 uh, trials. Many of those trials took place in this very courtroom, including those involving our former colleagues, Wolf Tone and the Shears brothers. I, I would like to thank Paddy very much for agreeing uh, to give this talk on our behalf, and I'd like to welcome his wife Amanda and daughter Grace this evening. Uh, I want to finally, because I made a speech last week, I'm not going to repeat it, I do want to thank, however, the court service, uh, and in particular Alan, who's here looking after us today, also the chairperson, the, the Chief Justice, and the Chief Executive Officer, Mr. Brendan Ryan, for allowing us to use the court for this uh, lecture series. I think it's a particularly fitting and appropriate place to have uh, a lecture series uh, like this. Uh, finally, I want to again thank the staff of the Bar Council, particularly Rose uh, Fisher, uh, for the great work that she has done in putting this together, also our director, Kira Murphy, uh, and Shirley Coulter, our, our director of communications and policy. So I'm not going to say any more. I would like you now, please, to, to welcome Paddy to the podium. Thank you. Well, since I'm on the judges' bench, I think the first thing I should do is correct the chairman. Wolf Tone's uh, court-martial was far away from here. <laughs> However, starting on that good note, uh, I, I say, as usual, and as I always do, sisters and brothers, um, if you came to this courtroom from our new home up the Keys, you passed to come here through a lot of history. You would have passed by the Royal Barracks, or Collins Barracks, as it's called now, where a number of court marshals were uh, um, heard. Uh, on the riverside of that, there is the old Croppies Acre, now a large area of green grass and a little bit of tarmac. If you had walked up the uh, tram lines, um, you would have passed by Smithfield, where the Lawyers' Corps in 1798 uh, would have mustered. If you paused by the um, Law Library building on the corner of Church Street, you are very close to old 159 Church Street, an iron foundry, and run, it seems, exclusively by members of the United Irishmen, at least one of whom was convicted in this court and hanged very um, close by. And then as you come along uh, by the Bridewell, you're travelling where uh, a notorious um, street used to be called Pill Lane, which was the seat of every combination conspiracy that was ever known in Dublin. You'd have turned left, I hope, to come here. And as you pass the playground here, the seat of where formerly Newgate Jail was, uh, you will find in that a small memorial, rather decayed now, 
And if you look across it, one of the uh, walls on the far side there, you will see the only visible remain of Newgate, uh, the side, side gate, a rather um, crumbly piece of stone. So you have travelled through history to come here, and this indeed is where uh, uh, most of the trials which occurred after 1797 um, occurred. Um, let's just look at a bit uh, about the bar. Adrian mentioned last week there were 2,000 barristers on the roll. That is true. But there was actually about 36 practising silks and about 360 uh, juniors. On the defence side, in the cases that we're looking at, um, most of the barristers involved were either in the United Irishmen or sympathetic or Whigs or liberal is perhaps a more modern phrase, and they were, they were unusual and revolutionary in um, uh, having favourable views to Catholic emancipation and parliamentary reform, unlike the majority of the Irish Parliament. Uh, many of them espoused French principles, liberty, equality, democracy, and they ranged from such fantastic orators as Curran, who also sat for 15 years in the Parliament, Ponsonby, a, a, a large and um, uh, important member of the Whig establishment, and then the juniors. Uh, the Shears brothers, John and Henry, who'd been about eight or nine years of the bar when they were executed. Uh, McNally, um, uh, who's well known, and uh, I'll be mentioning him. Uh, Lysett, Thomas Adesemet. Some younger people that it's not possible to know a lot about Green. There's, an, there's one guy called Guinness. And there's two um, uh, northerners, Sampson and Burton. All sympathetic to United Irish principles. So the people who did the trials during uh, 98, provided they weren't themselves in jail or in the dock, uh, or, or otherwise, and in the years before, were from a very, very small coterie um, within Dublin. And they would have been highly visible because this was a time in the 1790s when it was very obvious where your politics lay. After all, the Shears brothers were prone to calling people citizen. Now, in a country which was at war with France, uh, this might have been, let us say, obvious. So who prosecuted and who defended? Well, on the Crown side, the, in all of the cases, the Attorney General appeared, the Solicitor General appeared, the first and possibly the second or third sergeant, which was a step up from uh, QC, at least a couple of silks. So that's five or six at least on the prosecution side. On the defence side, it's nearly always Curran and uh, Ponsonby, or occasionally Bush in the lead, uh, then with a combination, usually of McNally or Lysett and others like that. So when the government, after the outbreak of the rebellion in 98, commenced a series of state trials, neither side, prosecution or defence, uh, were coming to it cold. Such, such trials have been on the go for three years. And on the defence side, there was a very definite team, which was Curran and McNally. Uh, Curran was a, a formidable um, lawyer and orator. McNally uh, had ability. He was also very fond of the technicalities and uh, uh, liked to have a large book full of, um, full of uh, cases that he had attended, or even better, cases that he had done. Um, there were other able juniors. Uh, uh, Edward Lysett, who was about 35 years, nicknamed Pleasant Ned. He wrote humorous verse um, of the kind, and I have uh, one verse I'll read to you. It's um, called Advice to Paddy. Um, and Paddy, as you will understand, is, is a Catholic Irishman. It says, Ara Paddy, my joy, what makes you so shy to join with your Protestant brother, your brother? Sure, never contrive if you both do not strive 
to live in good friends with each other. Each other. You foes long have prided to see you divided, that they with more ease might oppress you. But when they once find you together have joined, I'll be bound they'll be glad to caress you. <laughs> Either way, you, 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 you get the idea of Ned Lyson's politics. Uh, on a slightly more humorous thing, um, uh, he wrote a rhyming alphabet of the bar, and the only bit that I've been able to find out, but I'm sure some of my colleagues can, is the L and the M. L stands for Lyset, who loves a good joke, himself. M for McNally, who lives by the rope. So we also have Thomas Addis Emmett, uh, mentioned by Adrian last week. He's 34 at this time. He's a very able lawyer and successfully United Irish leader. Unfortunately, he could take no part in the uh, trials of uh, 1798 on account of being detained by the authorities as a state prisoner since about the 12th of March. We have John and Henry um, uh, Shears, um, uh, who are known, and a couple of others. So Curran, by the mid-90s, is the height of his powers, and he's got a very good practice, mainly on the civil side. He does the size work. Um, he has prospered an MP, stern critic of the government. McNally, who's brought him in Cable Street, maybe about 100 yards away here, possibly a convert, uh, raised a grocer, gone to England, written operas and songs, done some criminal work. He seems to have enjoyed that in Britain. Then he came back to Ireland and was deeply involved in the Night Irishman. So the, the trials really start in around 1795, and we see repeatedly this, the same teams on either side. So it's always the four or five top men from the, sorry, from the prosecution, um, Attorney General, Solicitor General, etc., and usually with a couple of additional silks. And on the defence side, it's nearly always Curran and McNally. And the first time we see these teams coalescing is in a whole group of things called the Defenders. Now, they have the, much of the appearance of the United Irishmen, um, uh, French principles, um, and unfortunately, like many of the United Irishmen, addicted to putting things on paper, which is very dangerous when the sheriff comes calling. So in nearly all of these cases, there is a very recurring theme, the government's detestation of French principles, um, which isn't um, surprising given that the that the war started in 1793. And for that reason, because of the war with France, it was all the more easy to um, prosecute and prove treason because any connection with the French was going to be presumptively uh, treasonous. So in a sense, all roads lead back to France. And they do in this sense. In 1794, a rather interesting clergyman called William Jackson, who is in fact an emissary from the French directory, came to Ireland to sound out the radicals to see, well, how are things going? And he brought with him, as I suppose every clergyman should, his trusted uh, English attorney or solicitor, a man named Cockaine. And uh, he came and he actually visited in Newgate Prison, uh, behind the petty jury there. These are, of course, the grand jury, I hope. Um, he visited Archibald Hamilton Rowan, who was a founder member of the United uh, Irishman. And, of course, uh, nothing would do but he would be entertained at a very jolly dinner at which there was much drink and uh, food by the leading prominent Irishman, um, uh, Leonard McNally, at his home in 57 Dominic Street. Um, it's roughly around this time that McNally begins to inform the castle about uh, what he knows, and his handler is somebody relatively close to him, a man called John Pollock, who's the Crown Solicitor for Leinster. And I just want to say, while obviously McNally's perfidy um, uh, cannot be ignored, um, I I'm not going to um, uh, deal too much with it, interesting though it is. So in, in, in April 1795, the Jackson trial opens. And the reason I deal with this will be, become clear. And there's a very full-on prosecution. The Attorney General at this time, and until the middle of 98, is Arthur Wolfe, afterwards Lord Kilwarden. And as you know, he was 
the only prominent person killed in the Emmet Rebellion in uh, Thomas Street. And there's the usual forest of Lunary. So there's about five silks at a minimum on this side, and I'm assuming this is still the um, prosecution side, but you have to forget, uh, uh, remember one thing. This Sessions House didn't open until late in 1797. So um, this trial occurred in the rather cramped confines of the old King's Bench up by Christ Church. The defence team is very large. Uh, it's Curran, Ponsonby, so two big silks, Guinness a junior, McNally a junior, Thomas Addison a junior, Burton and Sampson. And uh, Sampson is a man who has a very interesting history right throughout particularly the northern things. And I just thought that um, uh, uh, the opening of the Attorney General might be a little bit of interest because he said, it appears that Mr. Jackson, in a day or two after his arrival, this is on a treason trial, made an acquaintance or renewed an old one with a gentleman of the name of Leonard McNally. Mr. McNally, merely no doubt from that hospitality in which Irishmen are never deficient, invites the two strangers to dine with them. And as a man of manners always does, he selected an agreeable company to meet them, Mr. Simon Butler and a Mr. Lewins, were among others present at this entertainment. The conversation was naturally turned to the gentleman who had come on this, la on this kind mission, to the state of the country. Much talk there was about the discontented state of the kingdom. Anxiously did he inquire how far the people would be willing to rise if there should be an invasion by the French. So at this trial, this is how the attorney opens. And sitting in the junior council benches is the very man, Mr. McNally. So uh, you, you have to ask yourself, this, this is very interesting. And he mentioned a Mr. Simon Butler. Well, he's a chairman of the United Ireland. He'd been indicted in the House of Lords for contempt of it. He's a big player in the Catholic Committee, in other words. And Lewins, who is probably the most formidable revolutionary and who was our principal ambassador of the United Irishman to the French government. At this time, and obviously when Jackson was rumbled, uh, Wolf Tone left Ireland because he had been compromised as well. I have to say, Wolf Tone had given up practicing at the bar. He only did three circuits and didn't enjoy it at all. Of course, Cochrane was a spy, and uh, Julie swore up. Jackson was convicted, and deciding to uh, 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 take his own life, he took poison and died in the dock. And the uh, 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 bench was disappointed because they'd just been about to pass sentence. Um, uh, and uh, because they, he could not reply to the question, have you, any, ha have you any reason to offer why judgment should not be effected against you, uh, they couldn't actually do it. So his body was left in the dock overnight for what the judge referred to as a respectable inquest. And um, at his funeral, uh, the two Shears brothers and young Guinness barrister attended. And then we have this sort of the, 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 these trials which then commence. And what's really interesting about the trials of what the people call the defenders, these are essentially the United Irishmen in some shape or form. Uh, again, quite a lot of paper, uh, secret signs, all that sort of stuff. But what's really interesting about them is from 1795 to 98, uh, there are a large amount of people prosecuted, and not all of them are reported. In fact, most of them aren't. But it seems very clear that there's a form of legal aid going on, because there's quite a lot of mention in other literature, maybe not the most reliable, of very large collections which are given to be given to Mr. Dowling, the attorney, for the defrayment of expenses to ensure that nobody will be tried at the assizes on a serious offence who's a defender without having some class of a defence. Um, so what we see here are really prosecutions which divide into two. Um, treason in the usual way, something to do with France, adhering to the king's enemy, raising a rebellion, and also the offence, slightly later on, of administering an unlawful oath, because this was a society in which secret societies 
were um, addicted to the swearing of oaths, and uh, many oaths were sworn. Um, it seemed to me just part of the way things organised the things in those days. Um, and the actual story which is told is nearly always told through two forms of evidence. Firstly, there's an informer who tells the judge and the jury all about how he just happened to be passing the pub and he met a friend and his friends had come in and then they had a couple of nagons of whiskey and then he's invited into the back room with a whole load of people who are taking oaths and, and whatnot and thus he finds himself in the middle of the defenders or later the United Irishman. And um, in, the, in this case, one of the first of the informers is a fellow called Lawler and the first of the big defender trials is um, in 1796, and it's Colonel McNally for a Mr. Weldon. And this is a case in which there is quite an amount of evidence from the informer about the discussion about what is to be done. And there are also documents. Nearly all of these cases have an, an informer plus documents. So major certain people like that would raid and they would find documents in, let's say, the accused's handwriting or things like that. So these are not just cases about informers, although the case principally depended on them. Um, so this was a very typical one. McNally did all the technicalities and, well, they didn't go very far. Curran is a very cautious cross-examiner. And what's really interesting is there's a very different type of practice from nowadays. In cross-examining the informer, nearly all the material that is put to him is collateral. So the meetings are not dissected or things like that. In fact, you will be surprised if you desire to read these in the state trials to see to a large extent how they're concerned with is the person in other things dishonest, mendacious, fraudulent or whatever. So you will actually find that a very large amount of the cases right throughout are concerned with did people fiddle a signature on a bond? Had they perhaps poisoned their mother-in-law with rhubarb? or emetics, or things like that. And things that uh, uh, one wouldn't last very long with now if it was one ma one's main uh, narrative in crime. And this is a case in, 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 which is actually centered, Weldon's case, all around this area. It starts in a pub near Barrack Street, then moves on to Stony Batter and Arbor Hill. And a long defense is, um, uh, is, uh, is offered. In those days, most of the defenses were calling somebody to say, the informer is unreliable, or the accused is a very decent fellow and I never heard him say anything treasonable. After 20 minutes, uh, shortly after midnight, uh, the jury returned with the verdict of guilty. Now, that was the first of about seven or eight trials, and after Weldon's trial, Curran didn't appear in this run of trials, and I think the reason is that he was uh, engaged elsewhere on um, circuit. So we're talking about Christmas um, uh, 96 now, and we had a Mr. Kennedy and Hart then came up two days before Christmas. The other thing that is very noticeable about all of these trials is that everybody has an application for an adjournment because of missing witnesses. Now, that may not be necessarily suspect um, because trials came on very fast, but the prosecution don't seem to mind the matter going back, and uh, Mr. Kennedy and Hart are put back to the new year and then a Mr. Maguire uh, faces the unfortunate aspect of high treason for attempting to seduce a soldier in the 104th Regiment, uh, not in that way, uh, to become a defender. 
so uh, uh, the usual things happen. He gives his uh, account, and it seems like a very good one, about how all of these things that happened to him. And he's then asked, of course, the pertinent question, and can you see uh, that Mr. Maguire in court? And he, he can't see him. The court is crowded. So the Attorney General, who has clearly been reading um, English papers, says, there's a practice in the Old Bailey. Could the prisoner be brought to the front with some other persons as nearly of his own appearance as may be, and they should be placed along with him? We, we recognise this. This was done. So the lawyers vacated the front seat. The prisoner was placed there with five or six, as the young people might say, randomers. And he then went down, looked very carefully, and placed his finger upon the head of somebody who wasn't the prisoner. So, happy days, and he was acquitted. And um, the, the Crown obviously recognised that perhaps their soldier had been slightly seduced and gave up the next prosecution. Uh, four days later, that's three days after Christmas, John Leary is tried. We have the same informer, this Mr Lawler, who had been, I think, a gilder. And this time, Curran is not present, and McNally cross-examines very, very deeply, and a very extensive cross-examination. And one would have thought that things wouldn't be very much different in this case from the first case, Weldon, where Mr Weldon hadn't done too, too well. And what's really interesting is, what did McNally actually go into? And, and he went into a really dangerous territory. Because what he effectively brought out was that uh, Lawler was not just a man who had, as it were, passed by the pub and all that sort of stuff, but that Lawler had actually been involved personally in a plan to murder Cocaine. Cocaine, you will remember, is the attorney who had come over uh, with Mr. Jackson and had given evidence. And he put to him, uh, uh, and I actually have it here, but I'm not going to read it to you, about 15 lines of exactly what um, Lawler had done, that he had got a gun, he'd met a friend, they'd gone here, they were looking for cocaine, they went up to um, Henry Street, they waited there for two hours, they decided they'd try and get in through the back, they'd get in through the front, they'd climb over a glass, and all with a view to um, uh, uh, murdering Mr. Cocaine, and it was really important, should they murder him or should they not, if they murdered him, maybe the deposition he made could be used, so they had a bit of legal knowledge. Or secondly, if they just detained him, he might be deemed to have absconded, and then the verdict would go in favour of Jackson. Now, the first thing that I think, if we were sitting in a room and junior counsel had suggested to this, you might be saying, but isn't there a problem about all of that stuff? In fact, the Attorney General, when he closed the case, he said, learned counsel asks such questions from the secret cabinet of his instructions, which I think is a very loaded um, uh, image. But the jury acquitted, which is a matter of some interest. So the following day, we have uh, uh, December 30th, two others are brought up. Um, one witness for the Crown was ill, and the other had absconded. Prisoners are discharged. And the Attorney General, when he was opening these cases, had offered that the defenders attempted to seduce uneducated men, telling the poor, and I noted this in his opening, that they would enjoy the property of the rich, or share the wealth, as we might say now. Um, at a time, perhaps, when the attorney would have been characterised as being a member of the Profit for People Party as opposed to the reverse. <laughs> so, times change. When the sessions resume in February, uh, Mr Lawler, the informant, makes another appearance. Um, and McNally and Lysett carry the burden. And um, one of the first things that McNally does in the, the production is to um, 
complained to the court that he has been um, introduced in a paper, in a newspaper, which um, ha, um, had just come out that morning. Uh, that's not uncommon nowadays. So himself and Lysiter doing these cases, the remainder of the cases, trials ran from beginning to end. There was no adjournments for the day. Uh, 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 10 minutes was, it seems, about the most that anyone ever got. The jury came back at 2 a.m. on the morning of the 23rd of February, and he was convicted. The following day, the same team, uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Lysett and Mr. Uh, McNally, and Lawler, the um, informer, again appears. The jury retired at 1.30 the following morning, convict. So this is the fourth trial that Lawler has appeared in. And I noted Lysett's closing, which starts as follows. I have been very suddenly called on, he said, today, as I was also on the last trial, to defend the very able and eloquent advocate who had been assigned, having been prevented by avocations elsewhere, I presume, or some other justifiable reasons from attending, which is obviously uh, uh, current. In a sense, um, who amongst us hasn't had such, um, such a dream that suddenly uh, the case comes on? Uh, from my point of view, it's the fact that the junior mightn't be there who knows all about, all about the case. So those defenders' trials close with a conspiracy to murder case in which a man who had been prosecuting always, Mr. Ridgway, who also writes the reports, um, uh, uh, defended as well. And um, interestingly enough, around this time, there's a rather um, scabrous uh, observer known by the nickname of the Sham Squire, or uh, uh, Francis Higgins. And he tells the jury just about this time that Curran has been uh, uh, bound to appear for every United Irishman at every assize, and he's been given 500 guineas uh, so for that. The most seminal trial of all, because so many things hang on it, is the trial of Orr. The autumn of 1797 under the Insurrection Act. The Insurrection Act provides for the um, capital offence of administering unlawful loads. And that's not just to your um, own people, to the uh, uh, peasants and artificers, but also, much more importantly, to people who are in the armed forces. That's what seduction means in these days. And Curran and Sampson defend Orr. And um, uh, Curran made an interesting point. He said, well, look, here Mr. Orr is charged with um, administering an unlawful oath. And he said, I'd been much better off being charged with treason, because if you're charged with treason, you get a bit more notice, you get a copy of the indictment, uh, and there's a couple of other procedural aspects. And he complained about that, but that wasn't a, a, a good enough answer. And the judge who was presiding was an old friend of his, in fact, from, from the same part of Cork as he was, uh, Lord Yelverton who seems to have been very partial. The jury retired at seven, and I think it's one of the longest uh, times the jury has been out. In the 1790s, they come back 11 hours later. They make a recommendation of mercy, but they convict. Current two days later, having learnt of an amount of things about the conduct of the jury, including the fact that they had got whiskey, only two bottles, I notice, um, uh, and that there was ob obviously rows and ructions. But Curran also got a dissenting minister who had happened to come into town to say they knew an awful lot about the informer in the case, uh, which, had it been available at the time, would have been of assistance. A very large campaign is mounted to, um, uh, to um, commute uh, Orr's capital um, uh, sentence. Uh, that isn't done. He's uh, um, uh, executed on the 14th of October. Nine days later, Colonel McNally are defending James Dunn for a conspiracy to murder Lord Carhampton. And uh, two days later, having lost that one, 
they defend Mr. Carty, and he's convicted on October the 25th. So there is a forest of um, capital penalties occurring at this time. The connection, and why R is connected to all of this stuff, is the government were infuriated at the, uh, uh, at the um, extraordinary publicity that the or trial or, quote, miscarriage occurred. And there was actually a phrase which you'll find in any book about 1790 that says, remember or. So this was the byword for the, um, for the rottenness of the judicial system and for the corruption and cruelty of the government. And um, uh, Peter Finnerty uh, uh, was the printer of a newspaper called The Press, which was, a, um, which was uh, partly an organ of the United Irishmen. And he conducted a staunch campaign, and he was prosecuted for seditious libel. And who were his team? Well, he'd Curran, McNally, and both of the Shears brothers, and Mr. Sampson as well. And the attorney in this case is Mr. Dowling. Mr. Dowling is a, an a very good attorney, and uh, a man we'll see a little bit later. In fact, John Shears makes a small submission. It's not of any great law in this case. And we are now talking about here about uh, late 1797, so six or seven months before he appeared here um, as an accused. And what did the, the defence do? Well, in theory, they were trying to justify the libel. So the defence called Lord Gelverton. Uh, so there's an interchange as to whether uh, the truth is a defence. And McNally then called a man called Edward Cook, who's an undersecretary in the castle, to try and prove that uh, recommendations of mercy were um, received but not, not acted upon. <clears throat> of course, Cook is the man whose chief job is to gather all the intelligence, and Cook has spent the previous three years or so reading the letters that McNally actually writes to the castle. So Finnerty is convicted in this courtroom, imprisoned for two years, and put in the pillory for one hour. That's somewhere about 50 yards behind there. The pillory is uh, just opposite in Green Street. Uh, to support him, the two Shears brothers go up, Sampson and McNally, and shake his hand and whatnot. And we know that Curran is very busy at this time, and in fact he's, um, he's, he's doing quite an amount of work um, uh, out of town as well. And uh, the, the, the man whom I call the Sham Squire, who is a, 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 um, an interesting and scabrous individual, Mr Higgins as I've mentioned, um, writes to the castle, and he's giving out about Curran, he says, where a man attaches himself to the leading, leading advocate, Curran, of every murderer, ruffian, and rogue villain, fully convinced they have not sixpence on earth to fee him as counsel, but paid for by an infernal confederacy of miscreants, i.e. the United Irishman. An early knowledge of Curran, he said, led me into habits of intercourse with him, but I abominate his politics, his cause, and his infernal associations. So I told him so at Ferns on Wednesday. Mr. Ferns was a wine merchant from Abbey Street actually sat on the jury of um, the two Shears brothers. And in fact, on the first day of the Shears brothers' trial, the Sham Square comes down to uh, look at it. And um, the Sham Square runs a network of informers. Uh, uh, this isn't the day to talk about some of his more successful ones, like the barrister um, Megan or McGann, who um, betrayed Lord Edward Fitzgerald. But uh, uh, um, the Sham Square writes to the castle an awful lot, and he clearly has a very good ear uh, uh, which I suppose isn't surprising given that he was running an intelligence network. And Higgins is of the opinion that the government is letting the defence teams ride roughshod over the prosecutions. And he gives out about the fact 
that the prosecution witnesses haven't been sufficiently prepped um, up, in the, uh, up in the castle, where Major Sir was held to be uh, running an academy for uh, the informers as to how to deal with cross and all that sort of stuff. And he says, listen, Dowling has a system. Dowling has a system, for instance, that when the jury are being called, um, Dowling has several people up at the back there giving little indications to say, no, no, we don't want him, he's a loyalist. And not only that, but Dowling has a second card up his sleeve, which is that Dowling has brought down a large number of apparently respectable United Irishmen who are also liable for jury service. And if the sheriff runs out of people, somebody can put up their hand and say, I'm entitled to be on the jury here. So um, jury tampering um, uh, on, on, on that view was not exclusively uh, one side uh, uh, or the other. In any event, obviously, as we know, by 1797, the country's heating up. The Insurrection Act has been passed. One of the things it allows is uh, summary transportation. And uh, as we know, there's a large unleashing of the militias and whatnot. In fact, the Sham Squire writes to the castle and says, Matt Dowling is preparing a hundred habeas corpses for incendiaries, that say the suspects, who are being held on ship to be transported. And I ask you this, people have spoken of the cottage industry in Habos, but isn't it, uh, here we are 218 years ago or so, and we had uh, good solicitors like Matt Dowling. Um, 98 was a very unsuccessful year for the defence, but it began on a high note, um, when Patrick Finney was indicted for high treason, uh, the usual, a number of meetings of the United Irishmen, uh, the collection of monies, the writing of documents, uh, which are all seized. Uh, he doesn't stand trial until January of 98. He's a tobacco spinner. And the prosecution decided this was their best case. So there's 14 other people who'd been at all of these meetings, voting resolutions and favouring France and singing the Marseillaise or whatever. The single witness of importance, the informer, is James O'Brien, who like Millions, one fine day was walking down Thomas Street. He meets a friend, and friend invites him in. Within a couple of days, he's taken the United Oath, can identify lots of people, attended a number of meetings, and being promoted. Then, with this valuable information, he goes to the authorities, including, by the way, Mr. Cook in, up in the castle. And uh, uh, Mr. Finney is actually at a meeting when it's raided by the authorities, but he manages to make a, an escape with an amount of the papers. And what does he do? He goes to a pub and he tells two soldiers there what a lucky escape he's had. Um, one of the soldiers turns up as a witness against him. The other can't because he's been murdered. So uh, uh, I posit that when you look very carefully at these as a delay strategy to defer the trial for reasons which are now uh, uh, reasonably um, obvious, and this is not something which passes by the lofty head of the Attorney General, because Wolf, the Attorney General, uh, said in, um, uh, in this and other cases, uh, this case reeks of suspicious circumstances. And he said, uh, Mr. O'Brien might not be available for trial. In fact, there are 25 columns of the report just dealing with the Germans. Now, I have not seen a modern case in which that has happened. And then John Toler, later Lord Norbury, who is <coughs> prosecuting, says, Witnesses for the Crown cannot be insured to live. Witnesses are murdered and conspiracies formed, and he's probably right. The judges were perturbed about this and went off and came back and said, mm, the defence application induced a belief in the part of the judges. This application is not what it was professed to be, which is rather interesting. And perhaps it was a ruse to try and spring some habeas corpses 
by the other prisoners who were entitled to be released if they hadn't been tried within a certain amount of time. Again, I come back to the cottage industry. In any event, O'Brien swore up, and there's a wonderful cross-examination by Curran, which starts beautifully. Curran tended to start in a very small way, and his cross um, in all of these cases is really worth looking at. Mr. O'Brien, whence came you? Answer, speaking away, I will understand you. Question, do you not understand me? Whence? Answer, I am here. Do you mean the place I came from? Question, by your oath, do you not understand it? Answer, I partly censure it now. Question, now that you partly censured the question, answer it, where did you come from? Answer, from the castle. Question, do you live there? Answer, I do while I am there. Question, you're welcome, sir, to practice your wit on me. And of course, um, O'Brien thought that he had the better of Curran. This was a mistake. Um, all the cross-examination of O'Brien is on collateral issues. But it's fantastic collateral, because what do we learn about Mr. O'Brien? He habitually pretended to be a revenue officer to blackmail unlicensed publicans. So you could go in, get a glass of whiskey, I'm a revenue officer, what will I do? Well, a guinea will do. He later went to a magistrate and represented that the appropriate revenue officer had retired and that therefore in his place he could um, uh, uh, prosecute. He casually borrowed a note money, which uh, uh, seems to be a lot of in those days, in a rather opaque transaction, blackmailed a Mrs. Moore from the Queen's County and had her arrested for an unfounded debt. And then, and this was, this was the, um, the best point, he handed over a recipe to another man for converting copper coins into silver coins, and you'll actually find the recipe in the report if you want to <laughs> look for it, in his own handwriting. And uh, so small wonder that Mrs. Moore, who had been arrested, told the judges, I would not give a groat for his oath. And of course, there's the usual stuff um, there. So this was a jury of merchants. So a man blackmailing grocers and being party to coining, which was uh, not only treason, but also uh, capital. And one of the oddities here, this is where you can actually see two stories uh, at variance. Uh, you could both open your, in treason, you could both open your defence case and close your defence case, which was unusual. McNally opened the defence at exceeding length. The version in the bar literature is that a vital witness was missing, and therefore McNally had to, as it were, um, filibuster, or as they said in those days, speak against time. Um, the sham squires taking it was quite different. Dowling, the attorney, had a hard room opposite the sessions house, which makes it just about there as well, where common vagrants were dressed up as witnesses, and he, that's Dowling and McNally, would coach them. Um, however, as I have mentioned, Major Sir appears to have a similar academy in the castle, and perhaps the tooth is somewhere in between. Curran closed this case, um, the Jim, where Jimmy O'Brien had been the... Um, had been the uh, uh, um, informer, and denounced this case as the great experiment of the informer of Ireland, a cannibal informer, greedy after human gore and 15 other victims in the sights. So his charges pretty down the line. And after 15 minutes, the accused was acquitted. And the three weeks later, the Attorney General said that it would be indecorous and inconsistent with principle to proceed against the others. And that actually um, happened. And not only that, but the presiding judges actually said they agreed with the verdict jury. Now, after that, they tended to agree with the verdicts of the jury, but the verdicts were usually the other way. O'Brien was actually um, universally execrated 
There are at least five or six ballads about him in cartoons. And two years later, in 1800, he came to a bad end. He was convicted of a murder in Stevens's Lane. Uh, there was desperate attempts by Major Sir to have him um, reprieved, which didn't work. And he was hanged um, just over there uh, where, the, where Newgate Prison uh, was. And there's a song to the tune of The Night Before Larry Was Stretched. You'd be glad to know I won't sing it. But I just give you the caption as it shows the mordant humour of the time. It's called Jemmy O'Brien's Minuet, which is a dance, as performed at the Sheriff's Ridotto, number one, Green Street. So you, you, you now know what type of a dance Mr. O'Brien did. And we move then forward to the Shears brothers, because the, the, this is a case that has everything. It does have a poem, but it's absolutely terrible. It's written by Lady Wilde, and uh, I don't even recommend trying to read it. The defence brief for Henry, Henry Shears, still survives. It was dictated by John for Ponsonby, who came in um, uh, late in the day. And John suggests in his instructions in the brief that the reason the Shears brothers were being set up by the informer in this case was because they had been professionally employed in defending persons charged with offences against the state. And they'd done quite a lot of work in Cork from whence they came. So this all arises because when the Leinster director of the United Irishman was arrested at Oliver Bond's house on 12th of March, and the information of a different informer, Mr. Reynolds, the Shears brothers moved into the place of the directory. And uh, they believed, wrongly, that they had suborned, seduced, the phrase, a Captain Armstrong of the Queen's County Militia to bring over a large amount of his men under his command to the United Irishmen when they should rise in May. And uh, it, it would seem that Armstrong um, uh, had been uh, reading in a radical bookshop in uh, Grafton Street and desired to be introduced to the uh, Shears, and was so. When it looked like the conversation was turning to treason, um, uh, Armstrong, the informer, went to his commanding officer and he also went to Castlereagh, the chief secretary, and he also met Mr. Cook. He uh, was told on very frequent occasions, go back, keep digging, and he did so. And um, uh, he also attended and, and, uh, and dined with the uh, Shears brothers. The two brothers lived together. Henry was married and had children. And uh, there's a very potent sort of a, it may be a folk myth, I'm not sure, that Mr. Armstrong sat there and he listened to Mrs. Henry playing the harpsichord and had one of the little children on his knee. This is a very, very potent image um, of uh, Armstrong as uh, the sort of uh, the, 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 the worm and the informer and the, uh, obviously the breach of hospitality. Um, so uh, Armstrong uh, basically blows the shears uh, wide. There is a large uh, raid on anything to do with the shears and tons of paper is discovered. Most of it written by John Shears, who was uh, uh, the younger but I think it is probably suggested the um, more able of the revolutionists. And uh, the commission opened on the 11th of June. It was adjourned for a fortnight. Why? Because there was a shortage of people for um, jury duty, because a lot of them were actually serving down in uh, Wexford, um, Wicklow, Waterford. This is only literally weeks after all the terrible things that have happened from the Crown point of view down in Wexford. And, of course, we should uh, remember that our colleague, Beecham Bagnall Harvey, uh, paid the price for that. So the prosecution um, comes on in July, and um, there's the usual um, applications for um, uh, adjournments. In any event, the, 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 the trials start um, uh, around the 12th of July, 
And when it starts in this building here, uh, the only appearance amongst council is McNally. And McNally um, is foostering around saying he's got a technical point, but he doesn't want to say what it was. So they wait until um, the court sits at half nine, they wait until 10 o'clock, uh, nothing happens. And uh, Curran, sorry, McNally is just about uh, on the verge, I would say, of, of difficulty when Curran and Plunkett appear and say uh, they thought the court was sitting at 11 o'clock, um, high court hours. Now, there's an enormous amount of technical pleas and speeches. In any event, what was the point? Well, the point was this, was that when the grand jury had found the true bill against the Shears brothers, there was, unknownst to all, an alien on the jury. And the alien was, in fact, a Mr. De Clouseau from Bordeaux. And uh, aliens of that kind weren't allowed to sit on juries. Unfortunately, it was ascertained uh, that Mr. de Clouseau, being the good French Protestant that he was, as soon as he arrived here, he had taken the oath of allegiance to supremacy and the oath of abjuration. Curran tries to uh, kick the case on a bit. Deferment was definitely something to be hoped for. And why? Um, well, one reason is perhaps Mr. Armstrong would be called out on military duty and might, let us say, not do too badly out there. Um, so the, the judges are, are looking at these applications for adjournment, and Carlton, who is sitting somewhere around where I'm standing, says, you know, these motions are to be listened to with great caution. And uh, Saren for the Crown says, mm, the principal witness for the Crown is an officer in the King's County, and since the commitment of the prisoners was upon actual service and wounded in action, it's great importance that the trial should not be postponed. In fact, Armstrong had been quite, let me say, active in suppression of the rebellion. So uh, when the trial then uh, actually gets um, going uh, uh, properly, there's an unusual thing uh, is done. It initially uh, uh, appears to be an election of the defence, separate or joint trial. Uh, they initially go uh, separate. The prosecution says, we'll start with John. And uh, there was a very strong case against John. They change their mind and they decide for a joint trial. There's been a lot of comment about that. I can also see it from the perspective, as my colleagues will that perhaps if there is a, a case against two persons who are well-connected and there's a strong case against one and a weak case against the other, perhaps you hope the jury might, uh, as it were, look kindly on the, the weaker case. Uh, it isn't clear how many members of the petty jury, and I'm not sure whether the petty jury would sat here or there, but certainly it was thought by, um, by John that the majority of them would, in fact, not only be in the yeomanry, but would also be wearing the uniform. Certainly the foreman of the jury um, who would probably have sat uh, where Sean is over here, if it's there, uh, was Sir Thomas Lighton, wealthy banker, captain of the Rathdown Yeoman Cavalry, and later foreman of the Dublin Grand Jury. And most of the rest were merchants, for instance, John Ferns, who we heard of earlier, and who was actually quite friendly with um, uh, Curran. Curran writes him a, a little thing, uh, uh, not at this time, about um, drink. Uh, this was a very um, uh, common thing. Uh, drink was quite a big part of life then. Um, and what does Toler say? Well, he says, it grieves me that the first act of my professional duty should be to prosecute two gentlemen who are members of that profession to which I belong, a profession to which I am linked by every tie of affection, regard and gratitude that can bind a man of honour and feelings. And um, what he basically says, I have a case to lay before you, as plain as obvious and direct to criminate the gentleman at the bar as ever was inserted in any indictment. Lovely, plain language. But he also then did something which I, I imagine is relatively um, obvious reference. Um, he said, these men have advantages from being charged with treason. They get the indictment a number of days in, ad in advance. 
they're um, assisted by counsel. They have uh, greater powers of speech as they get lists of witnesses. This is obviously, as it were, thinking back to the Yor case, where Curran had complained that he wasn't charged with treason. Um, so I, this is why I think that the Orr case is, in a sense, something around which so many things uh, 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 revolved. And secondly, um, the, the Shears brothers had been snatched in, um, in uh, May, but Bond and others had been snatched in March. But clearly the government decided that they were going to make an example, and their best case was against the Shears. <coughs> and it was a good case, because they had um, not a bad informer, he certainly was no Jemmy O'Brien, and they also had tons of paper. So, at, at, at the end of the day, this was always going to be, I would have thought, a, a terrible trial to um, uh, run from the defence point of view. At this stage, of course, Mr Dowling is, has been taken into custody, as has Mr Emmett, so the assistance there just simply isn't there. So John Warneford Armstrong is produced and gives evidence somewhere within a couple of yards of here. In those days, I believe the tradition was that the witness actually sat on a chair on the table, and some of the older members here might know that that used to be done in the country. I remember it in Westport in this, sorry, in the last century, not the, any of the previous ones. Um, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of shilly-shallying around Armstrong. And, um, but it's very hard to see how the story is to be, is to be, um, is to be broken, because Armstrong is saying, okay, yeah, I met them, yeah, I did say, you know, I, was, uh, I had modern opinions, perhaps French principles. Um, but Armstrong kept notes after every meeting with the Shears, and the Shears brothers seem to have told him almost um, uh, everything. And um, uh, he actually brought them to court, so after the first meeting, after the second meeting, after the third meeting. You will note one thing. In cross-examination, he was not asked to refer or, uh, or, or to see the notes from which he might refresh his memory uh, for very obvious reasons. Um, so the Shears told him they were determined to do a home exertion because the French uh, were late. And what could Mr Armstrong do? Uh, bring the King's County Militia onto the United side. So we know that Armstrong goes up to the castle and everybody else. And what, what is the main cross about? Uh, is he an atheist or is he not? Um, uh, did he have money problems back in the militia? And then there's a rather strange thing. Um, had he boasted, for instance, of uh, the incident when he was on active service down in um, Wicklow, Wexford? And uh, uh, this is his account of it. That th this is um, Armstrong's. We were going up Blackmore Hill under Sir James Duff. There was a party of rebels there. We met three men with green cockades. One we shot. Another we hanged, and the third we flogged and made a guide of. Um, and I suppose the difficulty is this. The jury might have been saying, sound man, sound man. Um, at this stage, uh, um, we know that the teams have actually been uh, changed and um, split, so that Curran appears for Henry. Henry, it is thought, might have some chance of getting off, so Curran stayed with him. Ponsonby came in. It's his brief that survives, and he appears for... Um, John. So what did they find in John's handwriting? <clears throat> the following. It's obviously um, foreseeing that things have gone better. Irishman, your country is free. All those monsters who usurped its government to oppress its people are in our hands. That vile government which has so long cruelly oppressed you is no more. Some of its most atrocious monsters have already paid the forfeit of their lives. The national flag, the sacred green, is flying over the ruins of despotism arise then, United Sons of Ireland. Now, how could you get around that? 
in the brief, this is what John dictated, it will require the fullest exertion of counsel to prevent it being misrepresented. <laughs> Nothing could more exasperate the jury who will probably all be yeoman. So, uh, um, well, it wasn't a great brief to uh, start with, was it? So Major Sir then proves that he'd found all the documents and there's names and numbers of soldiers and all that sort of stuff. So the case is coming to a close at about 9 o'clock in the evening and all of these cases ran towards midnight. Refreshments were ordered for the jury, um, and, uh, but they were, they were taken in the box. Curran at this stage um, is able to make a, a final speech and he says to the court, I've sunk under this trial. If I must go on, the court must bear with me. But after a sitting of 16 hours with only 20 minutes interval in these times, I should hope for a few hours interval for repose, or rather for a recollection. Turn General makes an interesting offer. He said he won't consent to that, but if the, if the defence gives up their final speech, he'll give up his final speech. But, but that wasn't going to happen. So Karen um, uh, uh, rises to address the jury. I'd say it's about 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, and he, he traversed uh, uh, speeches which are terribly well known, the difference between English and Irish law, and Adrian referred to that last week. Two witnesses necessary in um, England, one in Ireland. The jury go out, 17 minutes, 8 o'clock Friday morning, convict, convict. Uh, 3 o'clock that afternoon, uh, they come back to, to hear the um, imposition of sentence. Only McNally of counsel attends. And I imagine that is because Colonel and the others are preparing for the next trial coming up. Um, and Henry Shears asked for time, it isn't given to him. John Shears asked that his brother be respite, that doesn't work. And they're executed um, here um, outside Newgate on Saturday the 14th of July. It is not a coincidence that it was Bastille Day. Because if you read back over the literature for the previous three or four years, Bastille Day was a big day. And there were bonfires in the revolutionary part of the cities and singing of songs and uh, uh, French colours and things like that. And I also think that the timing of, the, of, of that was a matter which um, was in everybody's mind. What greater example could there be uh, uh, to um, middle-class um, people on Bastille Day to be executed? Now, Ridgway reported this trial, as he did most of them, and it appears that Castlereagh, the chief secretary, ordered it to be published, and published immediately. And in fact, Toler's copy, Lord Norbury's copy, of this is, I believe, in the library in Trinity. This comes back to the or thing. This was a trial in which it was important for the government to show what the actual evidence was, that it wasn't a Jimmy O'Brien production, that there was very, very real evidence. And not only that, but it was really dangerous. This was not the nice face of the United Irishman because John Shears had always been uh, noted as being, let us say, on a slightly more um, direct action. Uh, end of the party. So, in a sense, you see why I, why, I, why, I, why I say or. And what are the connections? Well, Carlton Jay knows the Shears' parents. Curran knows everybody. Shears' father had, in fact, moved some amendments to the, to the Treason Act. John Shears spoke at the trial of Finnerty. Um, Shears, John Shears, was McNally's second in a duel with another barrister, Sir Jonah Barrington. Why? Because he'd libeled the United Irishman. In fact, Barrington says that he got a reprieve for Henry Shears, but arrived too late. But nothing that Barrington says um, is, is fortunately um, uh, credible. Um, uh, uh, he had a declining career. Uh, he's, he's well known for that. Fitzgibbon, who's the Lord Chancellor, and there's a fine portrait of him in the inns, knows everybody. 
in fact, he seems to have also been engaged to Henry's wife prior to um, Henry having uh, carried her off. Uh, McNally is, um, of course, a spy and communicates information. He's managed by Pollock, who's clerk of the Crown, who hands on all his information to Cook in the castle. Sauron, who appears in a number of these cases, but not very frequently, and sometimes he's not read into the record, so I think he might have a lot of business elsewhere. Um, Sauron actually ends up prosecuting Pollock for massive corruption, levying fees from solicitors in relation to costs. So we're sort of coming to the end here because we, 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 we then talk about the raid on Oliver Bond. So the Shears trial ended on the 13th of, Ju of uh, July. And the following Monday, Mr. McCann is arraigned and he looks for time. Why? Because two of his witnesses are, are confined on a boat in the river, possibly for transportation. The suggestion is made that maybe Mr. Cook in the castle could help, and he does, and the witnesses are produced the following day. And this is all about the raid on Oliver Bond's house, where yet again there was a large group of men around the table um, uh, um, uh, uh, considering the um, plans for the uh, rising. And um, <clears throat> Lord Edward Fitzgerald is introduced into this, because McCann, I'll give you his description in a second, uh, he, he mentions Lord Edward Fitzgerald and he says, um, the accused McCann had been politically seduced by a wretched young nobleman to enter into fraternity with an ironmonger's clerk. Now that's McCann. McCann, in fact, was the secretary to the Leinster Directory, um, but the, the class politics are rather interesting. And of course, McCann works in Jackson's Iron Foundry at 159 Old Church Street, uh, an interesting place to us. There is a very important informer at the heart of all of the ones that are at Bond, and that's a fellow called Reynolds. And Reynolds is quite a good informer. Um, he is a man of a little bit of education. He just about turned himself into a gentleman and bought a big castle in Kildare called Kilkay Castle. And um, he knows everything. And uh, very much uh, a self-made man and a, a good quality um, uh, informer. And uh, he had, in fact, been thought to have been on uh, the rebellious side. And the Louth militia descended on his newly decorated castle and in his own words, destroyed an immensity of property, and just note the order he does is, drank my wine, ate my provisions, and broke furniture. Um, uh, this is consistent with what the general officer commanding Abercrombie said of the Irish military forces, that they were formidable to everybody except the enemy. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, it, it's absolutely true. If you look at um, Kilala, when it was uh, liberated by the Irish army, it suffered more damage than it did in, um, uh, from, from any rebel force. So there's enormous. So Reynolds is again. And this is Colonel McNally. Reynolds is again brought through everything that is collateral, and there's an enormous amount of stuff about his financial affairs, and the question of had he poisoned his mother-in-law um, uh, with an indigestion remedy, um, uh, tartar and rhubarb is what I remember. Had he taken some of his sister's jewelry, and an immensely long thing, which looks like it came out of the commercial list, about something to do with a series of bonds. Um, so it is very collateral, and I suppose for the very simple reason, because he couldn't actually go to. I mean, this is a man who actually sat all the meetings with all the people. So Major Swan, who would actually seize uh, Fitzgerald, um, described to the court the raid on bonds, and he found a large amount of paper, but most pertinently on the, most pertinently on the paper, uh, what he found was a green shamrock with a ribbon that said Aaron Gobra, and even worse, under that was a harp. It did not have the crown on top. Very important. So uh, there's a number of witnesses in that case. There was Mr. Arthur Guinness, no relationship, and he was called to prove Mr. McCann's handwriting. 
and also uh, a fellow who is clearly from the United Irishman who pleaded the fifth. And um, McCann was convicted, and in, being the gentleman that he was, he said, much thanks to the gentleman for the defence of me, I wish I had more to give them. Two days later, Mr. Byrne's trial starts at nine o'clock. It starts with what? The usual affidavit about missing witnesses. That's brushed aside. And this time, Kendall Bush has come in, still Colonel McNally, and uh, it's pretty much the same as the, uh, uh, as the case. Except I notice that in this case, they produced a list of toasts that had been um, found. Um, that is to say, you know, there'd be a dozen toasts, you know, if you're on one side, it'd be to king and country. Well, two of them I noted, A, <clears throat> you would have said this with your glass of whiskey, the memory of Orr who died a martyr, <coughs> or the next one, may the guillotine clipped the wings of tyranny. Uh, the only thing I could find a great interest in this was the defence called Lord Edward's sister and aunt, the former, it seemed to matter of great curiosity, had lived in a nunnery for 13 years. Uh, the trial goes right into the next day. He's convicted. He says, I didn't think it possible that such a splendid display would be made in so short a notice. And Bush's speech is actually quite good. And then the last of the trials is Bonds, uh, the following day. So we're talking about over 12 days, four capital trials. We've started with the Shears, and we're only on the, we're just coming into the fourth trial. And uh, uh, Bond was, of course, uh, uh, secretary of the old United Irishman, um, and Simon Butler. Remember, we met Simon Butler, and McNally's was chairman. And so there's a big team, Curran, Ponsley, McNally, and a, a, a young junior called Jonas Green. And there's a, there's a lot of uh, toing and froing and complaints, in fact, about publicity. And Curran says, uh, the evidence has been introduced. And what do the judges say? say uh, they're going to refuse. It can be dealt with in the course of the trial, trial judge's directions. Otherwise, it will be in the power of every man to postpone a trial, and things haven't changed at all. Who's the foreman? Well, it's actually the man who was the foreman in, um, in the Shears Brothers trial. And yet again, Thomas Reynolds uh, is, um, uh, 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 comes on. During the course of this trial, there is a matter which is, is again part of the, the folk history. It may, it may be true. Very late at night, Curran opened for the defence, and he seems to have been forced to sit down about three times because of the hostile speeches, or sorry, the hostile actions of the people who were listening, uh, uh, amongst whom were a lot of military, and they talk about the clash of arms. And um, uh, uh, the, the official version um, uh, from the current end is he said, I may be assassinated, but I will not be intimidated. In any event, the court says to him, uh, pray, Mr. Kern, we will take care with the blessings of God that should not be interrupted. And the case runs very similar to all the other, um, and ends in exactly the same way. Bond is convicted. The trial judge is a man called Day, who's, um, who's not the worst at all. And what he says is, after a very patient, dispassionate, and impartial trial in the course of which you've had the assistance of as able, acute, and zealous counsel as the Bar of Ireland affords, you've been found without hesitation guilty by a most respectable jury of your country. In fact, um, he didn't suffer death. He died of um, a, a stroke before he could be pardoned. Kern was exhausted. Um, at this stage, and it is not surprising. Four capital trials over 12 days at a minimum. He went off to England to recuperate, but his last engagement for that year is when he came back in Wolf Tone, uh, had been arrested in Derry. And he's brought down, he's court-martialed, and he's court-martialed um, up at the back of the Royal Barracks. The report is a, is a very fine report. A lot of it concentrates on uh, uh, Tone's uniform. 
large and fiercely cocked hat, blue uniform coat, golden embroidered collar, two go large gold epaulettes, blue pantaloons with gold lace garters at the knee and short boots. Uh, the court martial is short and pithy. It was actually reported, um, and uh, effectively, uh, Tone's most important point, apart from explaining his principles, was to say that uh, if he was to be convicted, he would prefer to be shot rather than um, the usual penalty meted out to, um, uh, to traitors. Um, that was refused. And on uh, the 12th of November, Curran goes in on the affidavit of Tone's father and applies to um, Arthur Wolfe, Lord Kilwarden, the attorney for all those previous trials, he said, uh, he said, no court martial could have cognizance of him while the court of King's Bench sat in the capacity of the great criminal court of the land. The sacred and immutable principle of the constitution, martial law and civil law are incompatible. A writ was prepared, it went, uh, the sheriff went off, and the sheriff came back and said nobody would obey. And uh, um, the Lord Chief Justice, who was, um, who was a stern man, said, go back, take Tone into your custody, take the Provost Marshal, the head of the military end, into custody, and show the order of this court to General Craig. And then, of course, we know that um, Tone had committed suicide. So um, what, what, what do we deduce from all of this? Well, we, we know that there, there's been legal fallout. We know, as Adrian referred to last week, that treason um, is defined. Treason cannot be um, on the uncorroborated evidence of one witness. There's a very large element of legal myth and folk myth in this. Secondly, we know that we have in this country um, a very carefully circumscribed martial law, and we also have made habeas corpus um, a constitutional remedy. And perhaps the, mo the most common aspect is the, um, uh, uh, until recently, almost universal dislike of informers, which is a very, very large part of our literature. The personnel moved on. McNally kept going. He toured the country, did cases for the next 20 years. He went to Cork once. Curran worked on. Um, he actually did some prosecution with McNally for the Crown. Armstrong lived on for, I think, about another 50 years on a good pension. And he was always known thereafter as Shears Armstrong. As a landlord, he, when he renewed, uh, the, renewed leases for his tenants, he always made his life one of them, which uh, I think shows some um, intelligence on his part. Uh, Curran becomes master of the roles, uh, uh, not, a, not a great position uh, in um, 1806. Um, he doesn't like it. Um, he retires, he spends his latter years in London uh, sinking. Um, he's a rather lonely figure. Um, he had wanted to be attorney, it didn't work out. Two fine portraits of him in the library. There's a rather um, primitive one as you go into the King's Inns Library on Henrietta Street on your right as a younger man, and there's a very grand one above the fireplace in the main library. They're both very good. He was, um, you know, a, a, a man of immense talents, um, a fearless, independent uh, um, counsel. Uh, he suffered for his opinions, which were liberal in the day. His association with the trials did him no particular good, uh, but he had a clear and unflinching support for emancipation and representation. Um, I, I hazard to say that he, perhaps he was the first real Irish um, human rights um, lawyer. And as to the juniors, well, Emmett um, uh, emigrated. Uh, Lysett, I think, took to the drink and died in 1802. 
one of the last people to visit uh, Curran before he died in London in uh, 1817 was Peter Finnerty. Peter Finnerty, who had published the, um, the libel in the Orr case. And as a child, I remember being brought to pick blackberries in the ruins of his old house, the Priory in Dublin. And the Priory was not called the Priory because it was a, a place that had been stolen uh, under King Henry VIII. It was because John Philpott Curran was a member of a fantastic drinking club, which was called the Monks of the Screw. And that is the type of screw you put into a bottle and open. And he was the prior of it. And thus, any country house he had was called the Priory. And I therefore close with a, a, an encomium to, um, to uh, Philpott Curran. This was a dedication by a by counsel to him. He said, whose honest and intrepid heart was never influenced in the Senate or Parliament nor intimidated at the bar from exerting with zeal, independence and spirit his love to his country and his duty to his client. And I wish we could all aim for that. Thank you. You've been listening to Mr Paddy Gagby, Senior Counsel, deliver his lecture on the 1798 trials as part of the Green Street Lecture Series in 2016. We hope you've enjoyed it. For more of these lectures, log on to lawlibrary.ie or wherever you get your podcasts.